Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dave Golson about his book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. In the tradition of Rachel Carson's groundbreaking environmental classic, Silent Spring, an award-winning entomologist and conservationist explains the importance of insects to our survival and offers a clear call to avoid a looming ecological disaster of our own making. Smart, eye-opening, and essential, Silent Earth is a forceful call to action to save our world and ultimately ourselves. Well, Dave, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we are living through the unprecedented times of a global pandemic for two years now, I was wondering whether you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, obviously, it's been a very strange time for everybody. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit that I I've rather enjoyed most of it, actually. I, I really, really liked the first lockdown um, because I enjoy being at home. And I guess I'm lucky I've got a big garden and I live in the countryside. Uh, and actually being at home with the family and spending more time out in the garden uh, in the sunshine, we had a really nice spring, um, was was really quite pleasant. Um, I mean, I, I obviously I'm aware that some people had a horrendous time. But I, more interestingly, I guess the it did seem to me that that the, the the pandemic and our reaction to it did show us that we could change. You know that we, for example, we don't have to fly all the time. Um, you know the skies. It was it was amazing to have the roads free of traffic, uh, the sky free of aeroplanes and vapor trails, uh, and the peace and quiet. I thought it was actually rather wonderful and. Uh, um, I, I was I was rather sad when we went back to something closer to to normality, um, I, but yeah. So I I think you know we do have to change as a society in a, in a big way if we're going to tackle biodiversity loss and climate change and so on. And clearly we can do it. You know we don't have to carry on as we always used to. But that sadly is the default setting. And uh, we I, I hoped that we we would learn something from the pandemic and, and our reaction to it, but I'm not sure that we really have. That's an excellent takeaway. So can you tell us a little bit what about what you do? I'm a professor of biology at the University of Sussex. Um, I specialize in studying bumblebees in particular. Um, so bumblebees are the kind of big, stripy, furry bees, the most obvious bees in gardens and parks and meadows in in much of the northern 
temperate northern hemisphere. Um, I've been studying them for about 30 years. I mean, actually, I, to backtrack even further, I've been kind of fascinated by insects all my all my life. Um, I, when I was only five or six years old, I, for some reason, developed this passion for, for little creepy crawlies and started... Um, you know, one of my earliest memories is of collecting caterpillars that I found. There were some some little yellow and black stripy caterpillars on some weeds on the edge of the school playground when uh, at lunchtime. And I'd eaten my sandwiches, and I, I so I filled my lunchbox with these little caterpillars and took them home and reared them mm. up, and they eventually turned into moths. And I just thought it was brilliant, and I, I've been hooked ever since. Um, and I guess I've been really lucky that I managed to find a career where I'm. I'm paid to pursue my hobby, really, which is uh, has has you know become focused on. Initially, I was interested in in bee behaviour um, uh, as a scientist, but in later years, I've moved to to trying to understand what their declines and what can be done about it. And along your career journey, what roles did your mentors and also colleagues play? Uh, I, I've been very lucky, I guess, to work with lots of amazing people over over the years. Um, I mean, actually, but to, to to go back to the beginning, I, I uh, back to my primary school. In the, my last year at primary school, I had a teacher, Miss Scott, who really loved nature and took us out and pond dipping and and walking in the woods, looking at leaves and fungi and all sorts of things. And I, I learned a huge amount from her. And I think that kind of got me started on the right track. And I, I wish more kids had the chance to, to, to you know, really learn about nature from someone who was enthusiastic and passionate about it at an early age. Um, but since then, I, 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 I think more than anything, I, I sh- would like to kind of thank my. I've had about thirty-three PhD students who've worked with me over the last thirty odd years. Um, and and it's it's them that have done all the kind of really interesting research and the the science that I feel a bit like a parasite sometimes that uh, I um you know let them do all the work mm-hmm. and I then I then take the credit I don't take all the credit to be fair but uh, um they they've been the ones that you know doing the hard donkey work of research which can be really boring at times you know um, it might sound like fun, and it can be at times, but a lot of it is very repetitive scientific research. You have to do things over and over again to see if you get the same results and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, that's where I think the, most of the credit lies for any, any interesting f- uh, research we've come up with over the years. So you became a mentor yourself. And what would you tell your your colleagues who might be a little bit unsure about becoming like a real mentor? Uh, well, uh, try to overcome that, I guess, because you know it's it's obviously vital to encourage new generations to 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 pursue, but in my case, research into insects. You know, I, th- I think insects are amazing creatures, and I guess we'll talk more about them later. Um, but I want, you know, younger people to appreciate them and to, 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 to find the same kind of enthusiasm that I have. Uh, and so helping them to, to develop and learn and, and discover their strengths and weaknesses and so on is, is brilliant fun. And, uh, um, yeah, just enormously rewarding. So uh, everyone should give it a go if they get the chance. 
So your book is Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yeah, it feels a bit like, um, this sounds really pretentious and silly, but it feels a bit like I was I was sort of born to write this book. My whole career has kind of led me to this point. Um, uh, so I became in, in really focused on insect declines, I guess, about 20 years ago. Um, so the first few years of my research, I was studying insect behavior, um, just out of curiosity, really. But it became more and more clear to me that insects were becoming uh, scarce day by day. And so I, I started doing research on that. I started getting involved in outreach and campaigning. And I, I started a charity called the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, which has been pretty successful in the UK um, in trying to look after bumblebees. Um, but I, I kind of felt it was time to, to try and put it all into, into a book with the, the, the aim of, of raising awareness of the issues. So Silent Earth um, is about insects. It's about how fascinating and amazing and beautiful they are. Um, it's about how important they are. Um, they're, they're, most people don't appreciate insects. In fact, I, I, the honest truth is I think a lot of people hate insects or loathe them. They're frightened of them. They think they're disgusting, which it makes me very sad. Um, so my one of my kind of missions in life is to try and persuade people to, to love insects. And anyway, love them or loathe them, we need them. Everyone needs them um, because they essentially, without them, ecosystems would grind to a halt. They, um, they're food for lots of other creatures. They make up the bulk of, of known species, a bulk, the bulk of biodiversity. Um, they pollinate the very large majority of plants on the planet, rely on insects to pollinate them. Um, they control crop pests, they keep the soil healthy, they recycle cow pats and dung and all sorts of other things. Um, so, so, you know, essentially our food supply, the health of the environment requires insects. And sadly, they're, they're in decline. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence suggesting actually that the declines are really quite rapid Um and have been going on for several decades. Um, uh, so we should be really concerned about that, you know, because it, 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 it literally threatens our food supply amongst other things. Um, uh, so I, I, the, the book Silent Earth describes what we understand about the causes of insect declines and the scale of insect declines. Um, and then finally, for the last kind of quarter of the book, it turns to the positives. You know, what can we do? And thankfully, there is a lot we can do. Um, it's not too late for most insects. Most most insect species haven't gone extinct yet. And we can bring them back. You know, they will recover quite quickly, actually. And it's something everyone can get involved in, which I think is really nice, you know, that, um, um, for example, if, you're, if you have a garden or even a little balcony or roof terrace or anywhere where you can grow plants then you can grow insect friendly plants and actually see the results and i think that's really kind of exciting and fun and there are lots of people already interested in in doing this um 
So, so, and that's not the only thing we can do, but gardening is one of my big focuses. Um, we also need to think about how we grow food. Uh, we need to try and raise awareness of uh, an engagement with these, all of these environmental issues amongst the public and particularly with politicians. But one way or another, there are plenty of things to, that we can all get involved in, in, in the battle to, to save our insects. And that's really what the book is all about. It's trying to inspire people to get involved and to actually do something to help. I really appreciate this positive outlook uh, that you have and even something that is conveyed through your title, like averting the insect apocalypse. You're bringing all of us as heroes into this story, somebody who can save the day. So can you tell us how did you come up with this title? Uh, well, of course, it it, um, it borrows from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Um, and, you know, Silent Spring was published in 1962. So nearly 60 years ago, and it really raised awareness for the first time of the, the terrible harm that we were doing to the environment through uh, the use uh, of pesticides, um, which at the time were quite new. They were the, the sort of synthetic pesticides, insecticides, fungicides and herbicides and so on. Um, They didn't exist before the Second World War. Uh, they were really invented in the 1940s and became widely available immediately after the Second World War. Um, but within um, about 15 or so years, the, the, the side effects were starting to become apparent. There were animals being and people being poisoned, sort of ecosystems collapsing. Uh, under the sort of toxic load of these chemicals. And Rachel Carson wrote very eloquently about the harm that was being done and the need to find a better way. Um, you know, we need to grow food, we need farmers, we need farming. Um, but we, we, we need to also look after the environment and ensure that, uh, um, you know, our children inherit a, a healthy earth. Um, And she, I sadly, I, I think Rachel Carson would, you know, turn in her grave if she had any, if she was alive today. Sadly, she died just after publication of Silent Spring. Um, but pesticide use is, is, has increased hugely since her time, sadly. Uh, and, and yet there's much less awareness of it. You know, she was hugely successful in, in raising awareness and getting the worst pesticides of the time banned. But what happened, unfortunately, was they were replaced with other pesticides, some of which are much more toxic, in fact, than the ones that she was concerned about. Um, uh, and they, they're used more um, than they ever were before. Um, we currently apply about three million tons of pesticide to the global environment every year, and many crops are sprayed Um, 10 or 20 times in, in, a, in their growing cycle. So we've made much of the earth or the farmland of the earth hostile to life. Um, and so she would be horrified that, uh, that, you know, although it seemed like she'd won the battle uh, back in the 1960s, uh, we kind of lost the war. Um, and, you know, right now, Biodiversity losses, biodiversity is in freefall. We are seeing declines of uh, all sorts of wildlife uh, around the world. But 
my speciality being insects, just to give you a couple of examples in Germany, uh, German insect, flying insect populations um, have fallen by 76% uh, in, in 26 years. Um, you know, three quarters of the flying insects have disappeared from Germany. Um, in the UK, uh, butterflies have fallen by about 50% since 1976. Um, and I could go on and on. There are lots of other examples. Um, it's really quite quite uh, terrifying, actually, the, the scale of this. Um, so I'm, you know, basically Silent Earth is trying to remind people of Silent Spring and, and the lessons that Rachel Carson tried to teach us, but which seems to have been forgotten and and rejuvenate interest in, in tackling these big environmental problems. It would be truly eerie if you could not hear any crickets uh, during night. <laughs> Well, that I mean, it's interesting actually that um, if if you go back uh, 380 million years, um, there there was really no life on land, or just the beginnings of a few plants growing around the shores of the sea and lakes. And the first insects crawled out of the sea and started to colonize land. They were the, amongst the first little animals to live on land. And they would have been the first noise, the first animal-made noises, the chirping of crickets, the singing of, of grasshoppers, and so on. Um, the first song that the Earth ever heard came from insects all those years ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be sad if you know future generations couldn't hear the chirping of crickets, the song of grasshoppers, the buzzing of bumblebees? Um, that sounds like a terrible world to me. So in your book, you cover a lot of fascinating science about uh, these creatures. So let's delve into some of it. And shall we start from the very basics? So can you describe what are insects? Yeah. Uh, so insects are a group of um, creatures that belong, the larger group they belong to are the arthropods, which means jointed feet. And they're basically creatures with an external skeleton. So they're really different to us. You know, we have a, a skeleton on the inside, as it were, um, flesh on the outside. They're the other way around. Their rigid parts are on the outside, like a suit of armor. Um, and so the other arthropods that include things like uh, the crustaceans, the, the crabs and lobsters and shrimps and spiders, um, Uh, and their relative scorpions and so on. But the insects are by far the most successful um, of the arthropods, and, and in fact, the most successful of all the creatures on our planet. Um, as, as I mentioned, they, they, the, fir the first insects appeared 380 million years ago, which is long, long before there were any dinosaurs. Um, and they, they remain to this day by far the most successful group of creatures on the planet. Um, so, for example, in terms of numbers of species, um, there are about one and a half million species that we've so far named of plant and animal altogether. Uh, 1.1 million are different types of insect. So they, they make up more than two thirds of all known life forms. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're, they're incredibly important in, in many ways. The, the key features if should anyone want to know how, how to recognize an insect is um, unlike other arthropods they have six legs um, 
Uh, and very often two pairs of wings. Not all of them have the wings, but lots of them do. Uh, they were the first creatures to, to fly uh, on the planet. Um, in fact, they had the the air of the, the skies of Earth to themselves for about 160 million years um, until pterodactyls came along and presumably started eating them. Um, but uh, yeah, so look out for creatures with six legs, uh, four wings, um, and their body is divided into three parts. There's a head at the front, um, then there's a thing called a thorax in the middle that the legs and wings attach to and that's full of muscles. And then the, the hind part, the abdomen, is the sort of third section, and that's where all the reproductive and digestive bits of the insect are, and it gives them a, often a kind of characteristic appearance. But uh, yeah, they're everywhere. They are, um, you know, you are never far, um, never probably more than a meter from uh, one or two at least insects. And if you're outside, then it's probably a lot more of them than that. Are spiders insects? No, spiders are arthropods, so they are relatives of insects, but very distant relatives. Their common ancestor would have occurred in the sea at least 400 million years ago, so um, uh, so they're not at all closely related. They, spiders, uh, of course, have eight legs, so they have two more than insects, mm. um, uh, but otherwise are, are they're kind of similar-ish in, in their lifestyles and so on. One of the things that all of these arthropods have in common, spiders, crustaceans, insects and so on, is because they have this out skeleton on the outside, um, it, they have problems when they to, with growing because it's rigid. You know, imagine tr trying to grow while wearing a suit of armor. Uh, it's quite tricky. So they have to split out of their skin and leave the, the old suit of armor behind uh, repeatedly as they grow. Uh, and it's 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 a really delicate stage of their life because for a little while they're they're very soft and vulnerable um, and and you know uh, at risk of being eaten by predators or whatever. Uh, one of the dis I mean, the, the the sort of insect uh, physiology body plan whatever is is very. Uh, adaptable and successful in some ways, but it does have this key flaw that every now and again they have to strip off their old coat and and grow a new one underneath. Tough on the outside, squishy on the inside. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned that um, the very early ancestors of uh, insects colonized land, oh, coming from. Uh, seas of uh, you know th those times I suppose. So could you tell us what were the roles in the ecology of the early Earth? Do we know anything about it? We we know very very little. I mean the the fossil record from back then is extremely patchy. Um, you know there, there were probably many many creatures back then that we've not yet found any evidence of. Um, they they. Um, the the very first insects to leave the land to, to leave the sea um, were probably herbivores crawling out to, to feed on the early plants. Um, there would have been ferns and mosses in those days. There weren't any higher plants, no flowers. Um, but uh, uh, so yes, there were probably um, some kind of simple plant feeding creatures to start with, but then. Predators came out after them, um, 
And there are many insects today which specialize in eating smaller insects or in parasitizing them, laying their eggs inside them and so on. Um, uh, but it, insects, because they, they're so numerous and diverse, today they fill more or less every kind of role you can think of in in, in ecosystems. Um, but exactly what they were doing 380 million years ago is, is um, I'm afraid, lost in the mists of time. So as we move through time, so can you describe some of those niches that insects uh, contribute to? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to think of anything they don't eat between them. So, um, as I mentioned, there are lots of herbivorous insects, things like um, caterpillars um, of numerous moths and butterflies. Uh, there are frog hoppers and aphids and grasshoppers. Um, all of them feed on on plant material. Um, uh, and then there are predatory insects which feed on the caterpillars um, uh, by eating them. Or there are parasitic insects that will find herbivores and stick their eggs inside them in this kind of alien kind of way, like the like the movie Alien, where the the poor caterpillar or whatever it is ends up with a, a, a parasitic insect eating it from the inside out in a sort of nightmare scenario. Um, there are uh, insects that feed on dung um, and play a really important role in, in disposing of animal dung. For example, cowpats. Uh, the second a cowpat falls from the cow onto the ground or within usually literally seconds, the first insects arrive. Uh, flies and then beetles uh, and then other creatures um, and it's a whole ecosystem lives around a single cow pat all of it based on insects they help to break down dead trees and leaves corpses of course when a larger animal a mammal or a bird dies again insects arrive very quickly and lay their eggs and they ensure that dead bodies don't lie around and this getting rid of corpses and um uh, and and cowpats and so on may sound like a pretty unglamorous kind of existence, and I guess it is. Um, but it's really important because, for example, cowpats um, are full of nutrients um, uh, that would be locked up if nothing broke them down. Um, uh, and in fact, there's this really interesting story. I'm digressing slightly, but bear with me. Um, from Australia, where... Um, we introduced cattle to Australia, I think, in the 1700s. Um, and there are dung beetles native to Australia, but they weren't capable of... They were they were adapted to feed on the, the very dry um, uh, feces produced by marsupial mammals, things like kangaroos. And they couldn't cope with the, the cowpats, which are much wetter. And they're kind of a very liquid. Uh, they literally drowned, poor things. Oh, no. So cowpats started accumulating uh, in the the pastures of Australia. And, it, and in the end, thousands of kilometers were being covered with this hard kind of baked um, cowpats that nothing could eat. Um, and the grass couldn't grow because the nutrients were all locked up in, in the cowpats. Um, and they had to, the Australians government eventually um, set up a program to, to introduce suitable 
dung beetles from elsewhere in the world to eat all these dried cow pads that were covering Australia. And it was hugely successful. They eventually brought uh, beetles from South Africa, which has a roughly similar climate, but that were able to deal with the, the liquid poo of cows. And uh, uh, and in, in just a few years, all the all the poo was disposed of. Uh, so, so it may not be a very nice job, but it's really important that somebody does it. Um, so, yeah, and also, of course, insects um, evolved to pollinate is one of the other key things that they they do that other organisms depend on. Um, the, 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 we, we're in, unclear is exactly when this started, um, something in the region of perhaps 140 million years ago. And, and until that time, there were no flowers because flowers uh, evolved to attract pollinators. Obviously, before that, insects, uh, plants rather, relied largely on the wind to disperse their pollen in the hope that it would just blow from onto from a male flower onto a female flower. Um, but sometime in the middle of the age of the dinosaurs, um, the first plants evolved a different system which was relying on insects to transfer pollen from flower to flower. And they started to produce petals to advertise that they were that to, to attract insects and they started to produce nectar to, as a reward for insects that approached them and scents to make themselves more attractive. So we ended up with a world full of beautiful flowers all because of uh, the insect pollinators. And to, today, globally, it's nearly 90% of plant species depend upon pollination by um, animals of one type or another and nearly always it's, a, it's an insect. So there's really they're involved in everything. It's you know, I could talk for hours about all the strange things they do, the weird and wonderful life cycles they they have. And in fact, in in the in the book Silent Earth, I was worried that it would be too depressing. <laughs> I actually <laughs> hesitated about writing this book for a couple of years um, because I thought, well, who who is going to read this? It's going to be so doom and gloom. Um, in the end, I decided that it could be done, but that one of the things I needed to do was sprinkle kind of interesting, fun stories about insects all the way through, as well as having a big section on the end, which is more positive about how do we can fix these insect declines. But the, the, these little snippets, these little stories that go at the end of every chapter about a different weird insect, and to try to kind of highlight just how incredibly diverse um and and just amazing insects are you know they do all there there are millions of them um i mentioned we've named 1.1 million insect species there are thought to be perhaps another two three four million that we haven't even named yet and each one of them will have a have a, a whole life cycle waiting to be discovered so who knows what's out there waiting for someone like me to 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 find them and and watch them so what are the relationships between us and insects, especially nowadays? Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, most people, at least in the Western world, um, don't like insects on the whole, sadly, too much to my, to my horror. Um, uh, but we need them um, for, for many reasons, um, some of which I've already touched on. Um, uh, the most obvious and clear link is through pollination with three quarters of the crops um, that that we grow in the world 
needing pollination. Um, so everything from apples and cherries to blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, tomatoes, chili peppers, squashes, even um, coffee and chocolate depend upon insect pollinators. So, um, you know, basically our diets would be much poorer without them. And the, the horrible truth is um, millions, perhaps billions of people would starve if we didn't have insect pollinators. Um, but then we depend on all these other insects too, which is much w less well appreciated, the kind of unsung heroes of the insect world, like the dung beetles and so on. Um, so we have this really odd relationship with insects. Most people don't like them. Most people have no appreciation for what insects do for us. But at the same time, we we depend upon them. Um, and And a key kind of part of my mission in life is to point this out to people to make them realize you know that that whatever they think of insects um, we should all look after them because you know we absolutely need them and our children are going to need them and um, you know if we want to hand over the planet in a healthy state to the next generation then then we need to ensure that there are plenty of insects still surviving um, so it's it's an odd kind of um, paradox that we don't like insects, but we ought to because they do an awful lot for us. So what are the ways that you study insects? For example, how do you know that the populations are on a decline? So it's actually really difficult to, to study that. Um, and I should say, actually, that there are enormous knowledge gaps. Um, the majority of insects are not being counted by anybody. Um, there are no long-term monitoring projects for insects in in um, South America or Africa, for example, which are pl both places with extraordinary insect diversity. Um, almost all the detailed monitoring of insect populations that has so far gone on in the world is in Europe or North America. And even there, it's patchy. We don't monitor anything like all of our insects. Um, but we do have some really good long-term studies. And depressingly, almost all of them show patterns of, of decline. Um, uh, so, for example, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, in Germany, um, keen insect enthusiasts uh, started putting um, things called malaise traps, actually named after a Swedish um, insect nut called René Malaise, who invented this kind of tent-like trap which catches flying insects. And um, uh, the German insect enthusiasts have been putting these traps on their nature reserves since the, the 1980s and regularly uh, emptying them and counting the contents. Uh, and essentially what you need to, to, to get a long-term study to, to monitor insects long-term is to have some systematic way of counting them that you don't change, that you do the same thing year after year, day after day, week after week. Um, so they've been putting malaise traps and emptying them once a week um, since 1989, so for um, 30 years. 13 a bit years. Um, uh, and that enables us to look to see how the, how numbers of the catch has changed over time. Um, similarly, in the UK and some other parts of the world, we have butterfly recording schemes where people go out 
uh, every two weeks through the spring and summer. They walk the same route and they count and identify all the butterflies they see. And if, if you have, as we do in the UK, we have several thousand people who do that every two weeks and they've been doing it since the 1970s. Uh, then you, over time, you build up a, an accurate picture of what's happening. Um, but I, as you can tell from what I've just said, it's a lot of work to do this, you know, and, and it only pays off when you've been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, when you can start to see the long-term pattern. Um, so it's, it's a big undertaking. And it's really, for, for many insect groups that are small, hard to identify, um, not don't attract that much attention then there are very few people able to identify them and it's the there the logistical challenges in monitoring them are even even greater which is why we have these big big knowledge gaps and obviously it would be it'd be great if we could do more insect monitoring but in the meantime all the evidence we have sadly suggests they're in decline that's a lot of field work isn't it yeah, it relies very largely on on amateur um, effort, actually, on on um, unpaid volunteers, um, which is which is, I mean, it's fantastic, and it's a kind of a you know the success of those programs. For example, the butterfly scheme I mentioned, nearly all the people walking those transects are not paid to do it; they're doing it you know out of love, um, and and that's you know that's fantastic but it's also a kind of a shame that we have to rely on unpaid volunteers because you know the, the there isn't enough funding for this kind of thing from mainstream research funders governments and so on um so the only way really it can be made to work is is by persuading people to do it um but of course that again you know there's a limit to how much you can get volunteers to do Oh, I'm really glad that you mentioned these schemes. And another scheme uh, that I'm, for example, contributing to something like um, identification of insects for Natural History Museum of the, in their collections, which you can do uh, online. So what is uh, the um, impact of this citizen science for uh, research on insects? Well, there's, I guess there's two things. One is that it provides us with these long-term data sets that would be almost impossible to get otherwise. Um, but the kind of twin benefit of citizen science is, is that it's also engaging people. Um, you know, it's giving them a, a chance to, to learn, to, to um, get involved in finding out what's happening with insects. Uh, and that's a really powerful way of, you know, s spreading the word of getting people to care um, uh, so, uh, of course, there are challenges with citizen science approaches as well. Um, so, uh, obviously, you, you need to make sure that the, your volunteers are doing the right thing, that they're, for example, if, if you want them to count butterflies, you need to be sure they're correctly identifying the butterflies they see. So, you need to provide training and perhaps some degree of validation of, of checking of the results to make sure that they're correct. But I think the benefits massively outweigh the you know the the, the difficulties, um, and it's it's not just in um, applies to um, you know to monitoring insects. There are lots of other really interesting ways that p the public have been enlisted to 
um, help in scientific research, um, some of them way beyond my area of expertise. For example, in classifying galaxies, uh, there's, a, there's an interesting citizen science project called Galaxy Zoo, which gets people to look at photographs of distant galaxies and classify their type in some way. Um, we, we, in my own research from Sussex University, we uh, we run a little thing called the the Buzz Club, which is a kind of um, club of insect enthusiasts that we ask mainly, uh, again, unpaid members of the public, and we ask them to help us uh, do experiments. So, for example, um, we're at the moment we've been trying out different designs of earwig hotel which uh, mm-hmm. sounds a bit crazy but they're ma- making little ho- homes for earwigs basically uh, which uh, earwigs are important um, biocontrol agents in gardens uh, uh, fascinating little creatures and so we're to, to we're getting people to try out different designs and report back to us about which which ones get the most earwigs essentially uh, so that we can come up with recommendations as to the best um designed for people to use so that there are anyway there are lots of ways that um, scientists can work with members of the public uh, and get more data and at the same time you know engage with with people and communicate with people and I think that's really important. So you already mentioned some of the reasons that we know of that contribute to insect decline something like uh, pesticides or insecticides so what are the measures to prevent this decline? Yeah, so um, this is is something everyone can get involved in, which is nice in a way, um, because you know a lot of environmental issues do seem terribly depressing and and we feel helpless, you know, don't don't we when you see uh, newspaper footage of or, or sorry, television news reporting of the rainforest in Brazil burning, which has been a you know depressing feature in recent years, um, or the ice caps melting or whatever. And you, you don't really think that, it doesn't feel like there's much you can personally do that's really going to ha- have much impact. But with insects, people can do stuff, um, you know, and and one of my passions is wildlife gardening. Anyone who has even a tiny garden can 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 invite insects and other wildlife in to live there, and I think that has huge potential to to really substantially help in the in in the fight to save our insects. Um, I I know the data for the for the UK best, and here we have about twenty two million gardens that cover an area of about 400,000 hectares um, and you know just that's a bigger area than all the nature reserves in the UK just imagine if they were all um, full of insect friendly flowers native wildflowers if if the lawn wasn't cut too often if they were pesticide free if there was a little bee hotel maybe an earwig hotel a pond for dragonflies and all the other insects that live in ponds um, and if we could get the local authorities involved as well so that the road verges were full of flowers and the roundabouts and the city parks and the cemeteries and all the other urban green spaces, then collectively, that's a huge kind of network of, of wildlife-friendly habitat. Uh, and there's no real downside to doing this. You know, There's no trade-off. There's no great cost to it, uh, apart from us 
you know, learning to live with our, our urban areas looking a little bit wilder, perhaps. Uh, and I think that's that's really exciting, and more so because it's actually already happening. You know, there are lots of people. Um, inviting nature into their gardens, doing all the things I've just talked about. And there are councils um, taking this on board as well. Um, I, it's an area I'm really keen on. And I've written books, not other books about it, uh, Gardening for Bumblebees and The Garden Jungle, are both basically about urban uh, conservation. There's this amazing I can tell I'd like this subject. Um, there's this amazing book actually by a lady called Jenny Owen uh, called The Wildlife of a Garden. And she spent 35 years. Uh, she, she lived in, in Leicester, which is a, 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 a biggish city in, in the north of, of the UK. She had a little garden, but she, she encouraged wildlife in it. And she spent 35 years identifying every species of animal and plant that she could find in her garden and it's astonishing so she, she, uh, in her little urban garden she eventually after 35 years ha had a species list of 2,673 different animals and plants hmm. 1,997 of which were different types of insect so you know 2,000 species of insect living in a, in a little tiny garden I think that's amazing um and it, it, you know, it's the sort of figure I figure I might have expected you'd associate with a, a rainforest or something, not a not an urban garden. So it shows that these creatures can live all around us. Um, so that's one thing we can do: we can invite insects and other wildlife into our cities. Um, but if that's a positive thing, that then <laughs> to be negative for a minute, the the bigger challenge is what to do about farming. Because a much larger area of, of the planet is covered with farmland. In the UK, 70% of Britain is farmland. And most of that is really quite hostile to life these days. Um, big monocultures of crops, very low diversity of crops, lots and lots of pesticides and fertilizers applied, degraded soils. It's really depressing. Um, and I argue that we fundamentally need to change the way we, we grow food. I don't think the current farming system is in any way sustainable. It's contributing hugely to climate change. Um, it's degrading the soils and it's wiping out biodiversity. And yet it needs biodiversity to pollinate the crops, to keep the soil healthy, to get rid of the cow pats and all these other things. Um, so so we need to come up, I, I think, ideally, with a, with a, with a different approach um, and if you stand back from farming I don't think it would actually be that difficult to to do we already have the knowledge I think to grow plenty of food for the world in a way that's sustainable um, so really we need I think to work with nature we need to focus on looking after the soil health which is vitally important if you want to grow crops uh, and support biodiversity uh, uh, we, and the only way we can really do that, if we really want to work with nature, is to massively reduce pesticide use. Um, and there are types of farming, some really interesting types of farming. And obviously, there's organic, pesticide-free. But more than that, I think there are some really exciting things like um, permaculture and agroforestry and biodynamic gardening, uh, farming, which all of which um, have really the same principles they all involve looking after the soil looking after nature um, not using any chemicals um, 
And the examples I've seen suggest that they can be really productive. They involve lots of people working on the land. They they produce healthy food, lots of fruit and veg rather than commodity crops and meat. Um, and the amount of food they produce is easily enough to feed the world. Um, so we really don't need industrialized agriculture and all these chemicals. And that, that, but obviously changing, there are a lot of vested interests in the current farming system and a, a very powerful lobby uh, from the agrochemical industry that maintains it. Um, and it's going to be a real battle to change. But that's the, the, the other big area, I think. So, you know, we can easily make our urban areas more insect friendly, but making the, the farmed countryside more insect friendly is, is, the, is a, a harder challenge. Uh, I think to do that, we need to win over more people into caring so that, for example, if more people bought organic food, then there'd be fewer pesticides used. If everybody bought organic food, there would be no pesticides. So we can help to change farming with our with our shopping choices. Every time you go to the supermarket or ideally go to a local farm shop um, or get food delivered from a local organic farmer, um, then every every time that then your your spending power is driving change. And if enough people did it, then that would do the job. So in one way or another, we can all help to, to save our insects and save the planet. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Silent Earth, surprised you the most? Uh, oh, well, uh, <laughs> the, the, it was hard to know where to start, actually. The, I mean, actually, the, 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 one of the more depressing parts was writing the chapter, the chapter on, on pollution and pesticides and, and the impacts they're having. Um, I, I had no idea quite how many synthetic chemicals were going into the environment, not just pesticides, but ones that are produced for all sorts of other reasons by industry and unfortunately polluting and contaminating our, our soils, our rivers, our seas. Um, uh, and, and most of these chemicals, we know very little about them. And it's really, really terrifying to think that, you know, our food is contaminated, our soils and rivers and water, drinking water are contaminated with chemicals, most of which the safety of, of which has never been properly evaluated. Um, and I mean, just to, to give you one example, there was a recent study from Germany that found that um, uh, it was 99% of Germans had um, herbicide detectable in their urine, um, uh, glyphosate, which is which uh, has been linked to cancer in humans, um, and and you know that's just one of the many chemicals that we're all being exposed to every day. It's 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 a pretty scary world actually, um, but on the plus side. I guess um, there are some uh, to, to think of a positive thing that I that I really discovered during the book. It was the speed that insects can recover if we look after them, if we just give them a chance. Uh, some really interesting examples of inspiring kind of projects, uh, for example, rewilding projects where um, uh, land is just set aside for nature to do whatever it wants to do without interference from man. Or some brownfield sites, which have um, with former industrial sites that have been abandoned. And simply by the fact that nobody was messing around with them or doing anything to them, uh, an amazing diversity of life can, can colonize um, 
in in no time at all. Um, there's a place in in West, uh, sorry, East London, uh, called West Thurrock, where there used to be a power station, a coal-fired power station, which was closed down and demolished, and the land was just left abandoned for twenty years. And then, when so uh, with a big fence around it, so no one could get in. Um, but when someone did eventually get around to peering over the fence, they found this amazing wildflower meadow had kind of just miraculously appeared. And they found all sorts of rare insects living there. Um, in just 20 years on a place that was, you know, in 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 a very urban part of London and was considered contaminated land that was no good for anything. So nature can come back. And uh, I, I, I think that's a really positive thing to, to understand, you know. Uh, it's not too late. We just need to give it a chance. Oh, that's an excellent message. <laughs> so have you ever eaten any of the insects? And what would be your <laughs> favorites? Uh, I have tried quite a few insects. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing that although in the, in the, in the Western world, very few people regularly eat insects, um, Actually, it's, it's the majority of the world's population do eat insects all the time. Um, 80% of, roughly of the world's population eat insects on a regular basis. And it includes most people in South America, in, and in Asia and Africa. Um, and they eat all sorts of things, big, juicy caterpillars, beetle, grubs, locusts, you name it. Um, I've eaten crickets. Uh, I've eaten Uh, beetle larvae. Uh, I've eaten ants. <laughs> I've eaten a fair few. I must admit. So, logically, actually, eat breeding insects to eat them does make sense. Um, they are um, much more efficient at turning plant material into nutritious animal protein than are cows or chickens or pigs. Um, they use much less space, much less water. Um, Uh, and so, so there is a good logical argument to, to, for encouraging people to eat them. But I must admit, the ones I've eaten, I, I, I didn't 100% enjoy. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before someone makes something delicious out of insects. Uh, the, the nicest ones, in my experience, are chocolate-covered ants, but I'm pretty sure that's just the chocolate. They probably need to grow on you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess we could get used to it. It's 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 obviously just our culture, isn't it? You know, and it doesn't make any sense that we, most people in Europe and North America, would turn our noses up at a locust, but we'll wolf down a shrimp with with enthusiasm. Well, you know, mm. really, what what's the difference? You know, they're 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 both arthropods. They're both kind of segmented with an exoskeleton and lots of legs. But we've been taught from birth that shrimps are tasty and locusts are disgusting so that's what we think but if you brought up in africa you probably you know you'd be very happy to eat a locust so yeah we i'm sure we could change but uh, there's a little way to go well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project so my my next project is i'm i've started writing a um It's a children's kind of encyclopedia about amazing insects with lots of illustrations, which I'm not doing, I hasten to add, because I don't have the artistic skills, but I'm writing the words for it. Um, I think that that would be great. I'm, I'm very keen on getting people while they're young. Um, you know, young children love insects, actually, or many of them do. And and yet they often grow up to be frightened of them. And I so 
engaging kids with with a love and excitement in insects is is I think one strategy to 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 try and ensure that the future generations care more for their environment than we have done. So I'm excited about that and I hope it's a big success, but time will tell. And when can, can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, obviously, the books are easily found, any good bookshop or the usual online places. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, which is full of information, particularly about uh, how to garden for insects. So if you just go into YouTube and, and type in my name, uh, you will find that very easily. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this insightful discussion. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.